Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to part two of the series that we're in right now called Love Has a Name. If you missed out last week on part one, that is okay. You can catch up at EncounterChurch.org slash messages for that one and so many more. Um, we're in part two of the series, and what we're doing uh, leading up to Christmas time is taking a look at the biblical book of Isaiah and this prophecy that was spoken to King Ahaz way back when, 700-something years before Jesus was born. And the prophecy said that a Messiah, a Savior, is going to be born. And this is Jesus, and they're calling him, and they're saying he's going to be called a few different things. Wonderful Counselor, that was last week. Uh, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, that's next week. And today, Everlasting Father. And just as kind of we get into this, uh, some of you who are maybe a little more theologically in mind, and you're like, see, that one doesn't ever, has never made sense to me. Because Isaiah is very, very clearly talking about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And, and why, would, why would they call him? Why would Isaiah say this is his name? He's going to be called Everlasting Father. Because didn't Jesus have a father? I mean, wasn't Jesus found in the Gospels like time and time again? He was praying to his father in heaven. And didn't Jesus teach us to pray and his disciples and said, hey, listen, the first two words in this prayer I'm going to teach you is our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. So Jesus, I mean, he had a father. So some of you may be theologically inclined. You're like, yeah, it just kind of seems like we're blending together. Like Jesus, the son of God with with God, the father, the first person of the Trinity. And so I just want to kind of address that real quick and say, like, how the three-in-one Godhead like totally fits together is way above my pay grade. But for thousands of years, the church has like embraced this triune three-in-one God. I'd love to have a conversation sometime with you about just some ideas on how this whole thing could work together and, and, and still make sense all at the same time. But what I also want to say is when, when the prophet here is speaking and calling Jesus everlasting father, he's not assigning Jesus like a role or responsibility in that. What's he doing is he's using a relational name. We learned that last week. A relational name to describe the character of Jesus. So Jesus, uh, the Son of God, in his love for you and I, is fatherly. So Jesus, in his, uh, his, his adoration for you, in his, in, his, in his deep compassion for you, he, he loves and he cherishes you. He's fatherly in that. Okay, the other thing, the much bigger thing for most of us when we kind of move into to knowing God and hearing God as everlasting Father is that, is that that's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, so a pastime that my wife and I have together is that after uh, we put the kids to bed and we are like up, you know, at night and, and we're, pr- we're trapped, we're prisoners in our own home because you can't leave when you have kids sleeping. You know, the law enforcement tends to look down on that sort of thing. So we're just like, you know, staring at each other and we end up talking and... Uh, one of, the things, one of the things we've remarked on time again is like, I just, I wonder how specifically we're messing up our children as parents. Like I know in a, in a, in a vague kind of generalized sense, like they deserve much, much better than what they've got. Like I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing, right? But like specifically, we, we've said, I wonder 20 years from now, when they're in a therapist's office, like unpacking some of this stuff, what specifically are they going to share? Like, well, what is that thing, you know? Because we all know. We all know that we've, we, we've messed up somehow or we are currently messing it up somehow. And so some of you are looking at this thing going, see, that's the thing 
with God as Father. And is Jesus as everlasting Father or just praying the name our Father? Some of you are like, see, that's always been a mixed bag for me. And I just, I, just, I, can't, I can't totally get there. Because my dad, right, you're saying growing up, my dad, you know, he was absent. He wasn't around. He took off when I was a kid. I never even had a chance to know the guy. And I'm supposed to use this word to pray to God in heaven? Like, come on. Some of you are going like, see, that's the thing. Like he was around, he was physically present, he was there, but like emotionally, he may as well have been on another planet. He would come home from work and he would sit in his favorite chair. And it was back when there were newspapers and so he'd open just one up and they open up huge, don't they? And just giant. And it's like this big wall in front of him, right? That said, don't bother me in black and white all over the page. And you're going, that's the impression that I have of what it means to be dad, a father is like there's this shadowy silhouette that I can see behind the newspaper, I assume. I never got to know him. And so you're like, yeah, that's, that's the thing. He's always just like disinterested or he couldn't be satisfied. No matter how good I did on the team, no matter the grades that I got in school, even in career stuff now, he's always asking me like when that next thing is going to come along that I take. He's never satisfied. Others of you are going, listen, like my dad at home, I mean, he's just, I've never had a meaningful conversation with a guy in my life. You know, you call home and they're like cute and old enough. They still have a landline at home, right? So you never know who's going to pick up the phone. And you call home and, and if he's the one who picks it up, like whatever it is, he'll try to pass the phone off to mom like as soon as he possibly can because honestly, I don't think he ever learned how to have a meaningful conversation. And like, that's the relationship with, with dad. And what we end up doing is, what we end up doing is we take our understanding of our God in heaven and we can't help but look through the lens of our earthly dads for better or for worse. And oftentimes it's for worse. Maybe you are like, man, I'm so lucky. I escaped all of that stuff. I mean, I had a, I had a terrific dad. He was always present. He was always in my life. And then you married into something that's just like, no, they check all the boxes, all the list. And for some of you here today, for some of you here today, the list goes way beyond even that. Because for some of you here today, you're like, listen, when I think about the relationship that I had with my dad, I think it's abuse. And with a church this size, I can tell you, it doesn't even have to be a church this size. I can tell you that there is somebody sitting in your row or in the row in front of you or the row behind you who's like, yeah, that was part of my past. And somehow now I'm supposed to pray our father. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. So if that's you, I just want to say, like, you're not alone. I'm going to share a story with you. This was from, uh, from a blog that I like to follow called The Gospel Coalition. And this is an author who writes about just this exact thing. And this is from, uh, his name is John C. Edwards. He says, I was 25 years old before I could say the word father while praying. Because the kind of relationship or lack thereof I had with my dad, it didn't roll off the tongue like it did for many of my Christian friends. How could I come to God without fear when I had been scared to go home whenever dad was there? How could I understand God's love and faithfulness when dad left town because he loved something or someone more than me? How can God be a mighty fortress of protection when dad hit instead of hugged? And so church, I want to just admit this morning that for a lot of us coming into this Christmas season and hearing this prophecy of Jesus saying, and he will be called everlasting father. 
It's remarkably difficult for a lot of us and for a lot of people in your life already. Uh, Dr. Stephen uh, Poulter, PhD, he wrote a book called The Father Factor. And it's not from a, from a, a God-Christian-based perspective uh, at all, but it's just incredibly helpful to kind of categorize some of this stuff. And he said, listen, this is a factor no matter what. This is not just about a Jesus thing or a God thing. This is just our experiences as kids. It's just they carry with us no matter what. And this impacts uh, career, professionalism. It impacts the uh, extent that we can be intimate or vulnerable with another human being. The capacity to experience romance is wrapped up into this thing. He's like, it impacts uh, people, how we view supervisors and father-like figures on the job site or in the office. It impacts the, the older brother types of people that we go to and we see at work. I mean, it is, it is everywhere. And if we're just to ratchet this thing up a little bit for those of you who are, who are considering yourselves Christians and in this Jesus movement, especially some of you dads or people who are going to be dads and speaking to you for just a minute, the level of influence that you have is just astounding. So this guy, sociologist Vern Bregman, he writes this book called Faith and Family. And in it, he's, uh, he just kind of unpacks like the staggering statistics about, um, about the impact that dads have. And one of the things that just jumped out at me, he said, um, he said that among households where nobody in the family is a Christian, if a child in that household becomes a Christian, adopts the faith, there's a 3.5% chance that the rest of the household will follow suit into, into faith. If the mom in the household becomes a Christian, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the household will follow into that faith. If dad becomes a Christian as the first one in that household, there is a staggering 93% chance that the rest of the household will follow suit. The level of influence that you have is astounding. One of the conclusions in that particular work was that was that there is no better correlation or no better um, significance to whether or not Children adopt the faith of the parents and how it was modeled by dad in the home. I mean, this thing is all around us. It is huge and we need to get it right if we're going to pass this on to the next generation or if we're just going to hold on to it for ourselves. And so fortunately for us, Jesus, he tells a story that, that captures the heart of the father so incredibly well. And around here at Encounter, we've heard this story before, but not like this, not through the lens of the Father. So we're going to let, we're going to let Jesus now try to, try to replace the view, our view of our view of the Father with his as the everlasting Father. So this is how it starts off in Luke chapter 6, 15. You can follow along in a Bible in front of you and the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Remember, we're phone friendly, so, so that's welcome too in the Bible app. It starts off Luke 15 verse 11 where Jesus continued there was a man who had two sons. And now it's important to know that that there were two sons because Jesus is talking to these two groups of people, right? I mean, he's talking to the one, he's talking to the tax collectors and sinners. And you're like, that sounds a little judgy. Um, not, not exactly. I mean, it was, but that was the social class of people that they belonged to. That's just like who they were. They were, they were the sinners. So instead of saying like, oh, you know, they had a white collar job or a blue collar job, they, would say, they were sinners. That's just like where they were. They, they didn't really act on any of these beliefs of God. They were, they were sinner people. Um, on the other hand, 
On the other hand, listening into Jesus was the Pharisees. And we're like, oh yeah, they were like this. They were like the, the super religious types. <laughs> yeah, but like to an extent and to a level that is beyond imagination for us today. Because sometimes we think about like somebody who's, who's like a super spiritual type of person. And we're like, man, she wakes up. It's like 5 a.m. And she does an hour or two almost every day and has just like Jesus time. It's amazing. And these Pharisees, these are the people that look at that and they're like, that's cute, right? Because they're like, I haven't eaten in a week because I live on the bread that is the word of God. And it's like, whoa. Like this whole thing is, we do our Bible reading plans. And, and a lot of us, honestly, we drop off in the second half of Exodus when it starts to get real descriptive over like temple furnishings. And we're like, not a carpenter, get back to the story. <laughs> Or others of us make it a little longer if you made it to Ezekiel, like way to go. But they're like, no, no, I memorized the entire Old Testament, or as they knew it, the Bible. Like I knew the whole thing, they memorized the whole thing. This is the Pharisees. So I just want to say, when the Pharisees are listening to Jesus, they're not just looking at Jesus. They're looking like through him around at the sinner people across the way. And the question that they have is like, Jesus, you're a, you're a religious kind of guy. You're like kind of one of us. Jesus, when are you going to drop the hammer on him? And how bad is it going to hurt when you do? And so Jesus is, is talking to both of these and he tells the story in verse 12. And he said that the younger one, younger brother, these guys, the younger one said to his father, father, Give me my share of the estate. And so he, he divided his property between them. I just want to pause and say, he, dad, divided his property between them. As his kid goes up to his dad and he's like, you know, we could do this whole song and dance, right? We could do this thing where I pretend I love you and I care about you. And I could try to like convince you of that until your very last breath. And then you could pass on and, and, and leave your inheritance to me and my older brother. Or dad, we could just skip to the end right now here today and call this thing what it is. I wish you were dead. Can we just go to the end and so I can have your money? That's all you're good to me for anyway. And his dad does. And I just want to like let it hang that it says that his dad divided his property in the Greek language that this was written in, it was bios, like biology. He divided his life, his livelihood between them. Like he broke his life and he poured it out to these two boys. And so the younger one, he takes the money, he takes the inheritance, he goes off to a faraway place and he squanders it on, on what the storyteller, what Jesus here calls wild living. And I'll just use your imagination to kind of fill in those gaps. Except we're in church, so maybe don't. Just don't. Just face value, wild living. Verse 14, following the younger brother then, he said, after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. It's an awesome status for a good Jewish kid like him. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. But listen, no one gave him anything. And the part of the story that just kind of like wrecks me 
is that Jesus is telling this story. And remember, we're focusing now on the Father. Jesus is telling this story, and he could have told it any way he wanted to. He could have told it in a way that Dad shows up before he goes to the pig farm. He could have told it in a way that his father just, just miraculously at just exactly the right time before he found himself on a social ladder that is one rung below the bottom side of a pig looking up. He could have had the dad rescue him at that point, but he does doesn't. Because what we're seeing here is a little slice of the heart of the father. And it's possible that this father loves his kid enough to let him experience the circumstances and the fallout of his own sin. That his dad loves him enough to let him hit rock bottom on his own. So I think about it in my own life and I think about it with my kids and I see my kids and they're jumping up on the couch and I'm like, stop jumping on the couch. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, it doesn't have anything to do with it's my couch. Don't break it. But no, you're going to get hurt. You keep jumping on the couch. You're going to get hurt. I don't like take them down because I kind of know how this is, how this is going to fill out. They keep jumping on the couch and then they fall off. And what happens? They get hurt. By the way, that's how my daughter broke her arm the first time. It was carpet, though. I didn't, you, you can't see that happening. Anyway, she falls off, right? Breaks the arm. Okay, she got hurt. Let her, no more jumping on the couch, though. Okay, magnified, much bigger, much bigger story. Because this is true story of this dad who is just fed up with his daughter. Because as he describes it, she has a remarkable ability uh, the, the spiritual gift of finding like the worst guy in the room, in every room. And then she goes up to him and she starts flirting with him and they hit it off. And they are just like falling in love and then she moves in with him and then they move away. And he's like this whole thing. And I know, I know that it's gonna end badly. It does every time. And so he's talking to this guy, he's talking to this uh, mentor person and the mentor, and he's going, listen, I just, I know where this is going. They're moving away. I want to get in my car, drive across state lines, meet her at work, and just like put her in my vehicle and drive home. I can do that. I'm bigger than she is. <laughs> and the mentor's like, you can. I mean, that's, that's an option. But like the question that you have to decide is do you want your daughter to be home or do you want her heart to be home? Like the question is, do you want just her body to be back under your roof, safe and sound, while her heart is still far away and she'll find a way to make those things match again? Or do you want her heart to come home? Because maybe right now what it looks like isn't just abducting her from work and driving across state lines. Maybe it looks like loving her until she decides in that far away place, it's time. And so in the story, we get a capture, just a slice of the father who says, listen, I'm going to allow you to experience the fallout of your own sin just enough so you know what you're being saved from. And it happens. The kid, it like hits him. When Jesus says it, he goes in verse 17, he says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, I'm starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, 
is his speech, right? He practices that. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's his speech. And so he got up and he went to his father. He says it was a faraway country, so he had plenty of time to practice the speech. Now you know, you know the speech because you've had to practice one of these speeches as well. Like everybody has a speech. When you get in trouble and you know that you're in trouble and you know there's going to be a conversation, right? You're way past curfew and you know dad is going to be up or mom or, or maybe they're not and they went, and you know first thing in the morning they're expecting a speech and you better deliver the speech. And so you practice that, right? And you're like, listen, I didn't know we were going to a party. I thought we were going to see Frozen 2. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't know there would be alcohol at the party. Of course, I didn't drink. I, I had a pop. I had like one pop. It was a LaCroix, okay? It was water that tastes like it sat next to a box of bananas. That's it. That's it. Flat tire, you know, car wouldn't start, like whatever. That's why I'm late. I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. There's a speech. There's always a speech, and he's working on his speech on the way home. Father, I've sinned against, sinned against you. Why is he working on his speech? He doesn't know his dad. He's working on his speech because he assumes that his dad is just like every other dad on the block. Picking up that book, The Father Factor, uh, Dr. Stephen uh, Poulter, that I mentioned earlier. He says he, he assumes, he assumes that his dad is just exactly like the other dads. He assumes that he falls into one of these archetypes of, of where dads go wrong when they go wrong. And so he assumes a speech needs to be had. Uh, Poulter kind of fills it out for us and he goes like, there's a lot of different ways that this thing could go wrong. One of them is the, the never satisfied dad. Uh, yeah, kids coming home from a long ways away. He's memorizing his speech because he assumes his dad is a never satisfied kind of dad. That type of architect. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, it's never enough. I, I, I got a job after college. I went away. I mean, I, I just entered my field that I was expecting to. And it's just, it's always like, what's next? What's next? It's not enough. So this girl talks about how she just so badly wants to hear her dad say those words. I'm, I'm proud of you. And she's recognizing this later on in life. And she goes, I went to some bizarre extents just to, just to hear him say that. You know, I, uh, I, I thought being the first person in my family to go to college would earn me that. I got my acceptance letter. It didn't. And then I entered, uh, I enrolled in college. I decided to major in like everything. I studied my, I studied my brains out. I got a, I got a 4.0 GPA in college. I, I had all kinds of academic merits and achievement. Graduation day came and my gown was like tassels and colors and just totally decked out from everything that I achieved in the last four years. My classmates were dreaming about the day when they could walk across the stage, hear their name called, and people would clap and cheer for them. I was dreaming about walking off the stage pushing through the crowd, finding my dad and hearing those words, I'm proud. The day came, I walked across the stage, I walked down from the stage. After the ceremony, I pushed through the crowds, they pushed through the crowds, we met up, face to face now, 
the moment I've been dreaming for for four long years, probably my life. And she said, my dad looked right at me. And he said, it's getting late. If we're going to beat traffic, we need to leave right away. I sobbed for days after that. It wrecked me. That was it. I was done. Traffic. Kid comes home practicing his speech because he thinks he lives under a never satisfied dad. Maybe he, he comes home practicing his speech b- because he thinks he, he lives under the roof of a time bomb dad. Poulter says that's the second one. The time bomb dad is the dad. You never know what you're going to get when he comes home. Because it honestly, it doesn't have anything to do with you at all. It has everything to do with what happened or didn't happen at work that day or, or whatever mood he's in right now. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Sometimes it's magnified by drugs and alcohol, but not all the time. Poulter writes like about this kind of relationship with dad and how it affects and carries with you. He goes, because, because you can't learn to love someone that you're terrified of, that you're walking on eggshells around constantly. He says, he says, as kids grow up and grow out of that, it still, it finds a way to stick with them. Sometimes it looks like hypervigilance. It looks like anxiety disorders. It looks like PTSD in kids. And it goes because they've learned, they've learned to adapt to their surrounding to a time bomb kind of dad. Or an absent dad. Like I said earlier, who's just physically or emotionally not around. Maybe it was his fault, maybe it wasn't. Maybe something took him away. Um, this is going to seem kind of random, but does anybody, does anybody remember Bo Jackson of all people? A couple people? Yeah, right? Bo Jack- There's like five people. This is not going to go well. <laughs> Bo Jackson was awesome, okay? I had a video game, Nintendo Game Boy, okay? It was Bo Jackson's football and baseball. Why both? Because Bo Jackson, as a specimen of humanity, played professionally both in the NFL football and Major League Baseball. I mean, Bo Jackson was incredible. And so this dates me a little bit now, but Bo Jackson sat down with Sports Illustrated Magazine and did an interview in 1995. And this guy, I just want to listen to what, um, what he said to the magazine a couple years ago. He said, my father has never seen me play a football or baseball game. Could you imagine? Here I am, Bo Jackson, one of the so-called premier athletes in the country. And I'm sitting in the locker room and envying every one of my teammates whose dad would come in and talk, have a drink with them after the game. I never experienced that. I mean, this is a guy who's at the top, the top of the thing that he set out to do. And he's still, and he's like looking around and he's going, I have this gaping hole in my life that I thought would be filled by now. And it can't because I'm just chasing after the absent dad who is never in my life. Like if I'm going to get, like if we're going to get real together now and I'm just going to put something out there and you might not like to hear this and that's okay. I'm just dialing numbers. If your phone rings, pick it up. This is just, might be the Holy Spirit on the other end of the line. But I'm going to throw it out there 
That I think that one of the greatest dangers of one of these archetypes of dad that's going to hit Christian families is this one, the absent dad. And it comes to us most often in this insidious language like, my role is to provide food and shelter for my family. And I just want to say no to that. Okay, and the reason why I can in confidence say no, 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 aim a little higher. The reason I can say that is because possums do that. They provide food and shelter to their offspring. And so as an image bearer of God, try not to trip over the bar that you're setting for yourself. Again, it might be the Holy Spirit talking, I don't know. But if you're convicted, think of, right? As image bearers of God, we're supposed to raise the bar up just a little more than that and to provide some, some maybe emotional proximity, uh, closeness as well. As a follower of Jesus, just consider maybe aiming higher than the possum. I, I just, I hear it read, where to start? I hear it read time and time again. Um, I read it time and time again that kids are asking for three things to hear from you, uh, especially dads, but probably moms too and everybody, but we're kind of got a dad theme going on here. Three things. Number one that kids want to hear from you is I love you, I'm proud of you, and you're really good at, and, and fill in the blank. It could be anything, even if it doesn't make any sense to you, especially if it doesn't make any sense to you. If they love it and God isn't explicitly against it, your job is to celebrate it, okay? <laughs> I love you, I'm proud of you, I think you're really good at, and, and whatever, whatever that thing, whatever that thing is. Point is, the kid faraway place. He's coming home. He's practicing his speech over and over and over, again and again and again, because he thinks he's coming home to, to one of these kind of dads. He thinks he's coming home to a dad just like every other person's dad. What he can't imagine is that while he's been away, his dad has been on the front porch on his toes, squinting into the distance, waiting for him to come home. And when he does come home, he tears off running after him. He tears off running after him and he says, continuing on in the story, he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, this is a speech. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but the, father, the father didn't even let him finish. And the father said, quick, quick, put the best robe. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And so, and so they began to celebrate. And my, my point is this. He thought he was coming home to a never-satisfied dad, or a time-bomb dad, or an absent dad. He had no bucket to put it in, that what he was actually coming home to was his everlasting father, this dad who would just love him to pieces. This everlasting father just loved him so much that he looked beyond all the stuff that he's been into and threw his life away on. And he's simply overwhelmed with the joy of having his son back. What does that do for us? Seeing the everlasting father like that, it, 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 it switches something. It recalibrates something. Instead of seeing our heavenly father through the lens of our earthly dads, it switches something. Suddenly we can evaluate our earthly dads by the love of our heavenly father. We can look at him first. 
maybe you guys um, growing up got the same picture that I did of salvation. It was helpful to a point, but it, but it has a point where it becomes unhelpful. It's a courtroom scene where you get pulled into the court and the devil is there as the prosecuting attorney and the devil has a long list of offenses that you've made, that I've made, and he's not wrong. He knows them and I know that he's right. And he's appealing to the judge, which is God the Father. And the judge is just trying to make a, make a, a decision on all of this, except for my, my defense attorney, my counselor, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is saying, I'll pay for the price, and God pours out his wrath on Jesus. See, that's true on a theological level. But on an emotional level, church, that is not how it's done. You have a picture like, like God the Father was somehow, somehow just... just trying to pour his wrath out on you. When since the beginning of time, God the Father was conspiring with God the Son and with God the Holy Spirit to save you, to come up with a way to save me. Like it did cost the Father. It cost him immensely. Remember the Father in the story broke his life and poured it out for his two boys. And then when his screw-up kid came back, the father in the story says, I'll risk it again. Bring the best robe, my robe. It's going to cost me to put that ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet, but I'm willing to pay the cost every time. I love him. I love you that much. To death and back again. I love you. I'm satisfied in you. I look at you like I look at my own son, Jesus Christ, and all the righteousness that is his. I put that on you. And that's what I see. The challenge today, this week, is to, is to take whatever picture you have of God in heaven as a father, formed and shaped as it is by your experience of earthly dads or father-like figures, and to begin to back pour it in with story after story of God delighting in you. You know Paul, Paul in the New Testament? Paul, the guy that would arrest Christians, the guy that would have Christians murdered and stoned for the sake of what, believing in Jesus? The guy that would arrest women and children and have awful things happen to them thinking he's doing it for God? Galatians chapter 1 opens up and, it says, and Paul writes, he goes, you know, God, God was delighted, was delighted to reveal his son Jesus Christ to me. God somehow loved me enough to want me to be saved. We read that, that David is a man after God's own heart. Like David, remember David, the guy who slept with a woman, right? Committed adultery. And you're like, I don't know, that's bad. I've known people who've done that. They came back. I've done that. I, I, I've come, I'm pretty bad. And he goes, no, because after the adultery thing, he had... He had his, uh, his friend and employee, he had the woman's husband murdered. And then he married her. And it's like, listen, I mean, this is, it takes bad to a whole new level. But David comes to God and throws himself down and God loves him and welcomes him back into the family even though he's a daughter and murderer. Right? That's the love of the father who's running after youth this morning. Just read the like stories after story in scripture of saying, no, no, God isn't like this angry deity of the sky. He loves you and he has conspired before time to save you. He loves you that much. So what I want to do is I want to come back to that John C. Edwards um, story and just let him finish out with his words of wisdom. 
John writes that I'm almost 31 now, and this is still a daily fight. It's a fight just to trust that God thinks of me differently than my dad did. It's a fight not to assume God enjoys disciplining me more than blessing me. It's a fight not to think God is mad at me more often than he delights in me. What changed it all was a recalibration. It took a reorientation for me to move forward in trusting the Lord and calling him Father. What do I mean? Instead of looking at my dad and then back at God, I learned to look at God first. And I realized if God wasn't my first source of fatherhood, I was always going to be off balance. If I didn't start with God, then he would always be the replica rather than the original. He says, my advice, push into scripture and go home. Trust me, it's safe. If you find yourself this morning needing to go home, And meet the father who's squinting his eyes on his toes, looking after you. Please, head to the table in the back. We would love to pray. We would love to introduce or reintroduce the loving father, the everlasting father to you. I want you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God, you are a loving, everlasting father. God, in so many different ways, Our own dads are going to let us down, are going to leave us for the simple fact that they're human, for the simple fact that they're temporal and they they won't be around forever. God, but you will. And you've chosen to reveal yourself and your heart as an everlasting father who will never leave us and who will never forsake us, who will never abandon us. God, give us the wisdom and the courage to backfill all of our misconceived ideas about who you are with who you actually are by allowing you to speak into our hearts, by allowing your love to crack through the walls that we put up and the experiences in the way. Our God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you for breaking through this Christmas season. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.